Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And today we have an awesome show for you. We are going to be kicking it off with Lenovo's smart home products that we talked about recently. We're also going to be talking about Madam A and Amazon adding motion sensors to that platform. Plus, we've got a hub, speaker, Wi-Fi, I don't even know what to call it, but Kevin likes it. Target was making a line of connected products, kind of like the Amazon Dash, but they killed it. We're going to talk about that. We've also got some lovely hacking news, including an IoT botnet and Google employees hacking things. Nest's new temperature sensor, a $300 million acquisition in the industrial IoT, and a pair up between two big industrial giants. Plus, we have our guest, Vikram Pavadi, who is CEO of Losix. It is a company that launches today focusing on indoor location. And we're going to talk about why indoor location matters, what the challenges are there, and what you can really do with that. So we're also going to have a message from one of our sponsors, SAS, the big analytics company I know you guys have all heard of. And now we should go to a message from one of our other sponsors. This week's show is sponsored by Auckland. Your customers are not a distributed error tracking system. With 64% of IoT users encountering performance issues, you need Auklet, the edge-first problem-finding software. Auklet uses advanced function analysis and deep learning techniques to identify errors and performance bottlenecks across your entire deployment. Auklet brings you the traces, system metrics, and environmental conditions you need to fix issues before your customers find them. Get started for free at auklet.io. That's A-U-K-L-E-T dot I-O. Man, I would really enjoy it if companies actually worked harder to find errors before I did. What about you, Kevin? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was a QA tester for many years, and it's always cheaper to find errors earlier in the life cycle of the product. Indeed. Okay, so let's get started with Lenovo news. We talked about this. We were like, Lenovo's doing smart home stuff. What? What? And now we have the details. Right. We knew about this because of the FCC filing that we found, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, but it wasn't until last week at the IFA show that Lenovo actually outed some new smart home products. And they are in the smart home because they make the Lenovo smart display, which runs Google Home, Google Assistant, etc. So, this is not totally new. So I would say this is an expansion of smart home. And in fact, they now have a dedicated smart home web page. And on there, you'll see the smart display, but also the three new products, the Lenovo smart bulb, the Lenovo smart plug, and Lenovo smart camera. Last week, we had very little information. This week, we have more, including availability, price, and so on. You should note these are all Wi-Fi capable devices only. They are all 2.4 gigahertz. So I know we've seen issues with some smart home devices running solely on that frequency, but it is what it is. They are not available yet, but they will be available in November. November, Exactly. The plug will be $29.99. The bulb will be $29.99. And the smart camera will be $99.99. So now we've got pricing, got availability. I really was wondering what they were trying to do, but now I sort of get it because if you think about it, they're a competitor to Samsung in many ways between laptops, well, laptops in particular, I would say, and they want to, I guess, get involved in the smart home. Everyone uh, wants to get involved in the smart home. They're like, hey, 
Yes, these devices, they have lower selling prices than the stuff we have been in, but everybody's going to need multiple smart plugs in their home. We want them to be in our ecosystem. Just sell, 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 sell. Yeah. Speaking of ecosystems, I should mention, this will work with the Google Assistant and will work with Madam A as well. There are two versions of their app that goes with this. It's called Lenovo Link, the Link app. It will be available soon for iOS and Android. And also with this, I would say you can see what people think is important in the smart home. So light bulbs, big check. Everybody wants that. Even they're especially useful for renters, but also a smart plug and a camera. So this ties into the very first devices we usually recommend people buy. I don't love cameras, so I don't recommend people buy that, but definitely a light bulb or a smart outlet to like remotely control these things is a great first step. So, you know, this is it's like the bare minimum you need to have a platform. So go Lenovo. Yeah. Speaking of bare minimums, I also noticed just now on the smart home website that they have, they have a smart speaker, a standalone speaker that works with Madam A. This may have been out before, but I think it's flown under our radar unless you've seen this before. It, it looks like an Echo, essentially. It's got an Intel Atom processor inside. It's got all the... Yeah. yeah. Okay. Five watt treble, 10 watt woofer, 99 bucks. 99 bucks. You get a Madame A and a better sounding Madame A. They get a whole portfolio. Everyone who sends us the questions asking who the heck Madame A is, Madame A is what we call Amazon's digital assistant. So we don't set everyone's Amazon's digital assistants off. So just so you know, okay, speaking of Madame A, we didn't talk about this last week. If we were remiss, I don't know how I missed this, but Amazon has added motion sensors as a category for the Echo. And that means that device owners can start integrating their sensors with Madame A, which makes automation way easier. So you're going to be able to say, if you see motion in this camera, turn on my porch light, for example. Yay! This is something that the device manufacturers have to do first. So SmartThings is one of the early adopters for this. They're doing it around their multi-purpose sensor and their motion sensor today. And you have to use the routines function in the Madame A app. Right. This is a new API essentially. So it's yes. it's not a yeah, it's not a device thingy. It's something that the as you said, the app makers and developers and so on have to integrate. Oh my gosh, but please use it. I want to start playing with this. The other device that uses this, unsurprisingly, is the Echo Plus. They have a Zigbee thing so that if you have Centralite sensors or Sylvania and SmartThings sensors support is coming soon. So if you have Centralite and Sylvania sensors and an Echo Plus, you actually could start using this today. You know, in other Zigbee sensor companies, oh, this is all Zigbee based, it looks like. So other Zigbee sensor-based companies, you'll have to certify with Madame A. And why do you think that is? I know the answer to this. Oh, tell me. Because what radio is missing from the Amazon hub? Oh, okay. That is, I thought, I was like, oh, do you have a scandalous story about... Uh, no, no. I'm Captain Obvious today. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, tell me more, Kevin. Yes. Yes. The Echo Plus, which is their hub. And we should explain for people who don't know what these are, Zigbee and Z-Wave are two mesh networking technologies that have been used in the home for a really long time. And they are low power mesh networking, like wireless protocols that are great for your battery powered sensors and things like that, and even door locks. But 
with things like HomeKit and a lot of the new functionality and new devices coming out, it's unclear if Zigbee and Z-Wave are going to still be like the masters of home automation that they used to be. So that's why we're devoting so much time to that aspect of it. Okay, so I would say, hey, everybody, please do this. It will be awesome. Because I really love having things automated based on sensors, although it can be kind of a pain to figure out. I once, it's tricky. Yep. I once spent like six months trying to figure out how to create like a automated go to bed routine for my house. I never succeeded. It was terrible. But have you not slept in six months? No, 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 no. I just I didn't want to say like good night. I just wanted like oh I haven't walked in the following hallway and these lights are out and this person is not. But basically. It just would all go to heck whenever um, I would come home from the airport at like one in the morning. There's so many variables. That's the tricky part. Exactly. Anyway, moving right along. Also, we got news that the Amazon's digital assistant now works with over 20,000 devices. That's ridiculous. This is why you often say the first platform that smart home devices target is Amazon's. It's true. They start with Amazon first. They've now started with Amazon first and moved to Google, and then they follow with Ift, usually. And I'll be curious, with HomeKit, with Apple lightening up some of the requirements, if we'll see a bigger jump to HomeKit. Yeah. Well, just to put this number in context, at the beginning of the year, Madam A worked with 4,000 devices. So now 20,000, five-fold increase. The number of brands went from 1,200 at the beginning of this year to 3,500. So they are making big strides here. There's also 50,000 Madam A skills. And what I'd actually start looking at, if you are trying to predict what's happening and how the smart home is going to get easier over time, look at the API integration. So like the motion sensor thing we were talking about, or last week, GE announced that you no longer have to talk to GE's Geneva assistant to control the ovens and other home appliances. And that's because they now have a native support for ovens and microwaves and things like that inside Madame A. So this is a big deal because what it's going to enable you to do is have some interoperability. So GE's ovens work pretty much the same way that, oh, Bosch's ovens. I was trying to think of an oven maker. <laughs> Bosch's ovens do in the sense that they're you know, on, off, various temperature controls. So once you have that, you can just say, once you link your particular device, to Madam A, you just say, hey, turn the oven to 350. And the Echo figures all that other stuff out. Right. And one other thought, in case we have some enterprising individuals that listen to this show, I thought it was interesting that Amazon mentioned a 22-year-old college student is making $10,000 a month with his word of the day skill. That is ridiculous. Opportunity. Opportunity. Yes, people love their words of the day. You probably should come up with something else. Math Indubitably. Okay. Indubitably. Sorry. That almost <laughs> slipped right by me, Kevin. Oh. <laughs> Speaking of APIs, this is rather interesting as well. Samsung is now allowing third party developers to build apps for Bixby. And I don't think we're going to call Bixby Mr. B because I don't really know anybody who's using Bixby these days, but that is Good news for developers who want to target another platform, but I, this is, I don't know. I almost want to say too little, too late. I mean, it's expected to happen. You'd expect Samsung to do this, 
but yeah, I just I don't see a big push for Bixby these days. Well, maybe in other parts of the world, is Bixby big in Korea? Well, the thing about Bixby is it's just not a good implementation. Perfect example, the Galaxy Note 9 just came out. Hottest phone out right now. Every single review I've read, Bixby is half-baked, Bixby doesn't respond, Bixby spins for 30 seconds and then says, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know they put on a good show with Bixby at their when they announced their home speaker, for example. But in reality, if I'm a developer, I'm going to be like, Samsung, you got to fix your Bixby first before I do anything. So Bixby has a Siri problem. Uh, oh. Not as not nearly as bad, in my opinion, having used both, but yes. Okay. And we should mention this. We kind of bypassed the standards part of this. We've talked about it briefly. But last week, also on Thursday, and I did write about it, but we weren't allowed to talk about it on the podcast yet. The Open Connectivity Foundation released version two of the IOTivity standard. And for all of you guys who have been following us for years, we've talked about this because this was supposed to be like a unifying standard for the internet of things, especially in the smart home. So it was, so is it? Do. it is not, I mean, it might be, but no one else is using it. So that's not true. So LG, Samsung and higher are all going to produce IOTivity certified devices coming to market in 2019. So that is next year. I'm really disappointed. I mean, I wrote about this when IOTivity, the first version launched, there were, it only ran on giant machines like hubs and things running atom processors. And it just, it was not great for the internet of things, right? Cried too much memory, all that fun stuff. And they took a really long time coming up with their security spec. I've been worried about the OCF for quite some time. I feel like this is too little too late. I've been watching this particular effort, oh, for like three years, maybe four years now. And then prior to that, I was watching Qualcomm's All Join, which was another effort to like have these universal data schemas for devices. So what it looks like we're getting is we're going to have the Amazon Echo take over this, I guess, and maybe Google Home. That's what I was going to say. Because if you take too long to come out with a standard and somebody else develops essentially their own standards that generally become pretty universal, your standard coming in late is as good as not having that standard at all. Basically, yes. So this is disappointing, but there are, I still actually meet with lots of people who want to use the Open Connectivity Foundation standards. So, you know, maybe I'll be surprised. It could happen. So let's see. We'll keep it up there. See what happens. Who knows? All right. A lot of little products and things to talk about. So let's talk about Orbi Voice. Kevin, you've been waiting for this. or Not this particular, but... Well, maybe not particular, this device, but yes, I am looking for and fully expect the next big move in smart homes to be consolidation. And by that, I mean, we don't need a box, a bridge, a hub, etc. for everything we do. Why not put them all in, you know, integrate them where you can. And that's what Netgear is doing with their Orbi voice. So what it is, it is part of their Orbi mesh Wi-Fi system and also is a smart speaker. So you get decent sound, you get a digital assistant, and you extend your network. So that's this type of product is exactly what I've been looking for. I mean, I get this product, but yes, I foresee many, many similar products from various vendors now. So Yay for everybody who hates hubs. All right. Oh, sad news. Target, the giant retailer in Minneapolis, they had a product called Fetch. 
It was actually a line of products. I mentioned this a couple times, but I think it was in the newsletter. It was like an Amazon Dash, except they built the functionality of a product. So you'd have a soap dispenser with sensors in it and a connection. I think it was Bluetooth. And when it was almost empty, it would reorder your soap. So kind of cool, but people did not support it. They launched it as a crowdfunded campaign. Nobody decided to support it. And I think it's probably a couple things. One, Target didn't actually talk about it. They refused interviews about it. So I'm like, "Eh, that's not the best way to do a crowdfunding. But then two, there is not a lot of trust built up like, oh, are they going to do this accurately? Do I need this? And many, 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 many months ago, we talked about a dog scoop. It was a dog food scoop that, you know, would order you more dog food as you scooped it out, basically, when it reached the bottom or it would pre-order it before it reached the bottom. Anyway, it was really hard because when you were trying to assess value as a consumer, you're like, it changes the equation. You're like, is convenience worth the little price premium? I don't know. And most people probably said no. And I think it's because they hadn't experienced the convenience yet, if that makes sense. It makes sense. I mean, we're getting bombarded these days with a shift to subscription-based things. So reordering when you're low on something smartly makes sense, but it's also like, oh, do I want another, you know, pay-as-I-go kind of things? So I think people are struggling, but you're also right. If Target doesn't talk about this kind of thing, how is anybody going to, you know, want to use it? Exactly. So I don't know. All right. Let's talk about hacks, Kevin. We got a we got a Google employee hacking the Google doors made. I was like, oh dear. Yeah, no, it's actually very good that Google's Sunnyvale offices were hacked by one of its own employees as opposed to somebody else, because that could have been really bad. But one of these employees out in Sunnyvale found out that to get into the Google offices, which uses I think it was NFC. It's RFID. It was RFID. There we go. A system made by a company called Software House. Software House, exactly. Well, Software House needs to take a look at its software because the encrypted messages that it was sending across the network were non-random. And this employee discovered a hard-coded encryption key used by all Software House devices. So he replicated the key and commands and was able to remotely unlock doors. He could even lock fellow employees out of the building. So the good news is he reported it and it is being addressed and Google's probably very happy that he did this in a sense. But this raises an interesting challenge that I worry about in our future as a consumer, for example, because the locks didn't have enough memory to be upgraded with the fix. So literally you had to, not you, but Google has to physically have those locks replaced. And that's like, gee, are device makers considering, you know, memory constraints and such for something like this. You've got to have some overhead in case something drastic goes wrong. So that way they're not basically sending new devices out to everybody. So that's actually, this comes up all the time when I talk to people, not just around security, but even around like basic functionality and product updates. So having enough overhead in your memory is a big deal. And people, you're going to bump up against it eventually because, you know, my gosh, we just keep making software bigger and bigger and bigger. But Historically, a lot of like locks, appliance makers, companies like that, you know, extra memory was like an, it's extra bill of materials cost, right? And they're like, no, just slice it to the bone. We need nothing. And so they're actually having to do a big shift in how they think about building their products for the internet of things. And they're getting there, but it is, it is definitely something that I don't think four years ago, 
they were thinking about. And now they are, and they're having to start designing this kind of extra overhead in. And, you know, it will run out. So I'm not sure how we we'll put all that in a modular setting or modular chunk. Yeah, the good thing is we've come a long way with remotely managing and updating IoT devices, both in industrial and elsewhere. But again, if the device itself doesn't have enough you know, memory to handle that, that's an issue. So it has to be part of the design process to think ahead. Oh, thinking ahead. Nobody likes that. Okay. Nah. Let's talk about the Hakai IoT botnet. Since you're doing so well on security, Kevin, I'm going to have you talk about this too. Oh, goody. Yes, a new IoT botnet, Hakai, as you mentioned. This actually appeared in July, but it's getting worse and has affected some D-Link, Huawei, and Realtek routers. So Hakai, by the way, is the Japanese word for destruction, according to ZDNet, so it's aptly named. Yeah, this is just your typical, I'm going to get on your router and I have telnet services and I'm going to ping every port I can and see what's on your network and what doesn't have a password or what has hard-coded, you know, from the device maker passwords. Maybe you didn't change it, so it could access maybe Wi-Fi cameras on your network and so on and so forth. So it's, yeah, it's not good. Not good. I believe that there is no fix for this yet. I have not seen record of one. Okay, more optimistic news. Relayer, which is a, an enterprise and industrial IoT software platform, they have been acquired by insurance company Munich Re. This is a deal that valued Relayer at $300 million. So this isn't bad. This is, uh, Relayer's been doing this for a while. They help companies tie a lot of their connected products together using, they've got a cloud services platform. They have lots of customers. They also offer analytics. And this makes a lot of sense because I believe there is a huge promise in understanding both risk and things like maintenance schedules. All of this fits in with the kind of actuarial world of insurance. So getting that kind of data and controlling it and being able to actually see it is going to be important for insurance companies going forward. I don't know if the companies working with Relayer are going to be excited about sharing this data with insurance companies. So we'll see how that kind of boils down. But I do think this is a highly strategic move for the insurance company. And one interesting note, Munich Re was one of the investors in one of the later rounds of funding for this company. Yes. Got to get in early on those. The industrial internet has been corporate and strategic investors are a wonderful funder of the industrial internet, I will say. Also, in this kind of industrial world, Jabil, the company that makes all kinds of things, it's a contract manufacturer, they are working with Tipco, which I associate with analytics software, to make an IoT board. So if you don't want to design your own board with enough memory, by the way, and handle all the analytics aspects and getting all that data up to the cloud, this is just another offering out there that Jabil will be like, hey, so while we're building your washing machine, we can also add this board in and you can start pulling data off of it very easily. So, I mean, it's an important thing for companies that don't want to have to deal with all that. And some tiny little product news. We won't talk too much about these, but Locky is a crowdsourced thing on Kickstarter. I call it a crowdsourced thing. It's like a Bluetooth key thing. It go your key, it wraps around your key. Your key then, you know, you know where it is. You'll get a beep if you leave your home without your key. And it also has a sensor in it that tracks when the key was turned. 
So you actually know if you've locked your door or not. You can't change anything. If you've left the house and you realize you haven't locked your door, you can't remotely fix it using this. But you know, for the space cadets out there, I could see this being nice. It makes your key sort of smart, but not so much your lock. Exactly. Nest also released its temperature sensors, three dollars I think this is fine, but there's some negative reviews out there. Yeah, there's a review just earlier this week by The Verge, and they're basically calling it the biggest upgrade is a disappointment because Nest hasn't changed that much. So to them, this is an upgrade. And they say it does the bare minimum, which is it's a temperature sensor. It doesn't have presence, for example. So you can't, you know, determine if somebody's in a room. It is very limited in its programmability because you only have certain blocks of time where you can set the temperature sensor to, you know, a certain temperature. And perhaps you have an early riser and you want to have somebody, you know, have a cooler room or a warmer room at 5 a.m. Well, you really can't do that with this. You'd have to actually do that on the nest. But it's a temperature sensor. It doesn't, you know, it's not going to do much more, I don't think. Yeah, an issue that I feel like in the media, we are like, oh, it's smart. It should be way smarter. So yeah, they're not telling you it's all these fancy things. They're just telling you, hey, it's a temperature sensor. We might think that it would be better to have a temperature presence and air quality sure. monitor sensor, but that's going to be like 99 bucks per sensor. And I think Nest that's is the right key in deciding that consumers don't want to pay that. Right. That's the key. So if you want it to have all these extra things, what would you expect the price to be? If you expect a three pack for 99 and have all those extra sensors, No, not likely. Not at this time. Not happening. All right. Let's skip ahead to our voicemail from the IoT Podcast Hotline. But first, we must tell you, we did our drawing for August and we have a winner. It is Michael Graves from Houston. Yay, Michael. All right. This week, we have a voicemail from Meg. But first, know that the IoT Podcast Hotline is brought to you by Schlage. Don't miss your chance to win a Schlage Sense Smart Deadbolt in Wi-Fi Adapter. To enter to win, all you have to do is call us at 512-623-7424, and we will answer your questions. Smarter homes start with Schlage. And I really have to tell you, the Schlage lock is really nice, you guys. This is a very high-quality lock. When you're installing it, I've installed many locks. It feels really good. It's super sturdy. You can tell that this is a meaty lock and it works really well. So we're excited to offer this to you guys because it is a nice product to win. And Michael got the one for August. So does that mean we are giving one away in September? We are. We are giving one away in September as well. And I also encourage you to win because, you know, this is not a huge drawing. I'll tell you, we get about 20 voicemails a month. And what we do is we stick them in a spreadsheet. And we use a random number generator to draw these. So your chances are not bad to win really awesome product, I think. And I don't just say that because they do sponsor this. I say this because it is a really nice lock. I'm on a call right after the show. Nope, nope. Kevin, you are not allowed to win. And actually, unfortunately, nor is anyone who's outside of the US and Canada. Uh. I'm sorry, England and Norway and all the other places that people call us from. So, okay. All that out of the way, let's hear from Meg. Hi, my name is Meg, and I'm from southeastern Washington. We're in the process of building a home in Colorado Springs. The builder uses a group to install their home automation products that use UltraSync from Interlogix for their hub. We now have a home that has a Wing 2 hub and a lot of MIS-A compatible products. I'm not comfortable using a group as an ultrasync from Interlogix. 
that I've never heard of since GE is in the midst. They're owned by GE, and GE is in the midst of divesting huge areas. Should we just have them install the Cat6 cable and audio and go our own way? Do you have another opinion? Oh, okay, Meg. This is a good question because I bet a lot of people deal with this because builders are like, yeah, this is the system we put in. Take it or leave it. In this case, I'm going to tell you that GE actually no longer owns Interlogic. They sold that off a while back. It's now actually owned by United Technologies. So you don't have to worry about GE's troubles there. And, you know, I think for us, the big question, and this is going to be for you rather, not us, because we're not installing this, is do you want to put this in your house and just ignore it, which is a possibility? Do you want to not have it in your house at all, which I don't know if that's a possibility, or do you want to try to use it? If you try to use it, you're going to be, there are some limitations. You will be stuck buying Interlogic's products. You can, however, integrate those with things like Madam A. So you can't go as far as like crazy smart home, you know, routines and integrating it necessarily with things like Wink or smart things, but you could use the voice control of Madam A to turn things on and off and do all that stuff. So that's one. And then Kevin. Yeah, my thought was you, since you're already using like a DIY system, you have Wink, for example, you said, as do I, you're not paying any monthly fees right now, obviously. I would check and the builder should be able to tell you if the Interlogic system has a monthly fee. I personally would not want that, which is why I have Wink. And I assume you feel the same way, but you're at a point where you can change your mind if you'd like. Maybe there isn't a fee, maybe they discount it. I only say this because Interlogic products are sold and installed through dealers. It's not an off-the-shelf kind of thing where you just install it yourself as a DIY person. So I'm assuming there may be a monthly fee involved. Yes, if you want the security, most definitely. So that's what we have to tell you. I'm not 100% sure what your actual options are, Meg. So hopefully this helps. You don't at least have to worry about the GE stuff. And if you want to, it might be kind of nice to just be like, just to use the Madam A app. It really depends on how you want to customize things and how much time you want to spend on this. So that is all we have for this week. Remember, if you would like to call us and ask us a question for your chance to win a Schlage lock, call us at 512-623-7424. And remember, smarter homes start with Schlage. Let's get ready now for our guest this week, who is going to be talking about indoor geolocation, which is a really hard problem for IoT. So our guest is Vikram Pavati, and he is the CEO of Losix. Before we get to him, we're going to have a message from this week's sponsor. We've got a new sponsor this week in SaaS. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. We are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is SAS, and I have Jason Mann, who is VP of IoT with SAS, here to talk to us. All right, so let's just get started talking about SAS in IoT. SAS has been in the analytics space for a long time. Can you give us a few updates and tell us what you guys are doing with the Internet of Things? So most people are familiar with SAS as, as a leader in analytics. So we've been in the space for more than 42 years. And the change that has been presented with respect to the IoT market is the fact that there's a huge explosion of data being generated by the sensors and the data is distributed. 
right, distributed into these edge devices. So our response to that has been an investment in streaming technology. So being able to take analytics from the previous batch processes to be able to apply those against data in motion. IoT is considered a big data problem, but oftentimes execution is required against small bits of data that are moving quite rapidly. So our investment has been in capabilities to allow us to generate insight in that distributed environment. SaaS has created a new IoT division to handle all of this. What does that mean for customers? So yes, we did create a new division within SaaS. The goal was to be able to pull resources together from R&D in our development operations, marketing, product management, pre-sale support, sales. All of these capabilities were brought together to focus on the IoT opportunity globally. For customers, there's a couple of things. Most of the use cases that we see around IoT are based on yield improvement, efficiency, failure detection, or a better engagement with their end customers. So for the yield class of problems, yield improvement, you see the capability to reduce the latency in the decisioning. So again, closer to the origin of data, closer to the origin of the problem set. And on the customer engagement, it really provides the ability for a unique message to a customer in a unique position with respect to geolocation or proximity to an end cap, proximity to a healthcare device. So there's a couple of categories that we're seeing new use cases leveraged by our customer base. So openness is a Big deal in the Internet of Things. How is SaaS handling that? Yeah, so certainly you see wide market adoption of some of the open source capabilities. I'll use an example as the Python modeling language. But what we have found through evaluation of multiple proof of concepts is that while you can generate insight from that modeling language, it's quite difficult to deploy that into enterprise environments for sustained value over time. So our investment in our infrastructure is to support the full IoT analytics lifecycle that allows you to consume those open source modeling languages, as an example, but then provide a capability to deploy that and maintain and improve those models over time so that you continue to sustain value. All right. And Jason, where can we go to find out more about SaaS and its efforts in IoT? Absolutely. So you can go to sas.com slash IoT, and that provides a basis for navigation into different industries or additional detail on the topic. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and today's guest is Vikram Pavati, who is CEO of Losix Inc. Hi, Vic, how are you? Hi, Stacey, how are you? I am super well. So, we are talking about location today, namely what you can do with highly granular location in the IoT and why it matters. So, Vikram, you guys just launched your company, but this is something you guys have been working on for five years almost? Yeah, absolutely. The genesis of the company, the idea of founding the company really started nearly four or five years ago. Okay. So let's orient people because people may not be really like, oh, why do I need such awesomely granular location? People may not even realize we don't have granular location for IoT. So let's talk about the problem a little bit. What is difficult about finding things? Yeah, so I think we're all very familiar with using GPS-driven maps and location technologies in the outdoor environment. You know, I can't imagine people navigating without Google Maps or Apple Maps today in the outdoor world. But once we come to the indoor environment, which includes all the way from, you know, your commercial buildings, offices, retail to factories, warehouse and logistics facilities, and also your home. 
what we lack today, Stacey, is a really precise way of localization indoors. The reason why precise indoor localization is so important is because in terms of in warehouse and logistics, for example, we want to be able to very accurately locate assets, which includes operational equipment, people, and the ability to locate and then track them as they move through these logistics centers, allow our customers to be more efficient, increase productivity, and get a lot of visibility on what's happening inside their operations. On the other extreme, for example, you can imagine having precise localization indoors in your home. And by understanding where all these devices are that are connecting to each other, then you can create a contextually aware environment where consumers can use these to automate a lot of their you know, daily chores that otherwise take a lot of effort to initialize and operate. And then in between, you have a variety of different applications like locating assets in hospitals, assets in factories, and so on and so forth. So indoor localization and the precision of that really enables people to be more efficient, more productive, and get more visibility on how things are happening inside their environments. And this is also a challenge just when you think about once I've put a bunch of sensors someplace, sometimes they move, sometimes things happen, and you want to be able to know where they are for maintenance, for battery changing, all of this, right? Absolutely. And you'll be amazed as to how, you know, you take the context of just operations and maintenance, right, in a commercial building. Take a large skyscraper and you have, you know, thousands of HVAC units or you may have light bulbs or lamps. All of these over time, you know, the course of a building lifetime, a building can be 25, 30 years. You have no idea where these, what was installed, where and what happened. And so, you know, even something as simple as smoke detectors and understanding, for example, knowing the location of these detectors, you can visualize where exactly the fire has started, where it has initiated, where it's propagating. On the other extreme, my lamp is not operating in conference number four. And I can send the right technician to fix it even before the customer complains about it. So the the idea of location is really, really important in operations and maintenance. And it goes all the way from commercial buildings, you know, including a home. For example, today when you install your smart home devices, you have to physically go in and lock in the location. For example, I have all these Alexa devices in my home and I have to physically go in and locate them, right? And so I have no contextually awareness, no spatial awareness of where these are, and just putting in user representation for that. So on a scale of very large buildings, that issue gets magnified even more. I can't even imagine. I hate having to deal with it in my home. So let's talk about we've needed this for a while, but we don't have it yet. Let's talk about the challenges of doing this inside different environments. There are three major challenges that have plagued indoor localization. One of them is that the environment that we are trying to track and locate things is very dynamic. Imagine a a logistics facility today where things are moving constantly. I mean, we are living in the world of e-commerce where there's so much automation and the velocity has increased so dramatically over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. So the dynamic nature makes it very difficult for us to use traditional technologies where we fingerprint and then try to assess if things are actually where they were supposed to be. And the second one is that indoor buildings, indoor environments have a lot of obstructions. We don't have traditional line of sight where technologies like optical or or even RF can actually 
see where the thing or the person that you're trying to locate. So this non-line of sight is a significant challenge. And then even beyond that, once you get past these two, you have what we call multi-path or reflections, where physically you can have you know 16 reflections of a given signal, and then which one was the real one and which one were the reflections. So this idea of uh, eliminating multi-path has really plagued the industry for, gosh, for the longest time. So those are three main challenges. And of course, it has to be affordable and scalable and cost-effective, and you don't want to be deploying something which is not based on a standard. So those are the main challenges that this indoor localization has faced over the last few years. Man, you went from like three to six or seven. Okay. (laughs) Lots of companies have tried to do this, and I'm just going to run people through a brief history of indoor location. We had nothing. Then we had GPS. Then we had GPS, and GPS didn't work well. We had GPS plus Wi-Fi. So we had a bunch of companies like Skyhook, and can't remember all the companies trying to do this. And now we're trying to add other radios. So there's efforts with like LoRa, Bluetooth location efforts. So let's talk about why you guys went with Wi-Fi and then also sub gigahertz. Yeah, so the Wi-Fi part was driven by a you know a recognition that three things were happening. One is that you know Wi-Fi has now become as important as water, right? I mean, every building in the world now has Wi-Fi, and consumers, customers all depend on Wi-Fi for data communication, in case even for voice. So Wi-Fi is really uh, the most ubiquitous infrastructure that is already present and will continue to be present. So that was one very important reason for going with Wi-Fi. That reduces the cost and the scale issue that you have with other newer technologies like even Bluetooth or ultra-wideband. The second part that we recognized many years ago was that there's an effort to increase the bandwidth in Wi-Fi that allows Wi-Fi to be even more interesting from a localization point of view. And that effort really started a few years ago, and we were able to understand that and leverage that a lot in our solution today. So we use a global standard called 11AC, uh, which is a high bandwidth, uh, which allows us to take advantage of the advances in Wi-Fi. And the third part that kind of combines the two is that what we realized was that it's a lot of it has to do with the algorithms and the ability to to do machine learning once you have captured the data. That's the reason why Wi-Fi became very attractive. And beyond that, just, you know, global standardization, the ability that a Wi-Fi device working in Japan would work in the U.S. or in Germany or China reduces a lot of concerns with our customers. And the ability to use mobile phones is very important as well. That's something that newer technologies will find difficult to do. And then the sub-gigahertz component we use mainly for communication. The comm side is to reduce the Wi-Fi's a power-intensive protocol. So the ability to use sub-gigahertz allows us to then communicate and maintain the network without leveraging the high-power transmit and receive functions of Wi-Fi. So you guys use radio, RF, to understand location, but you also have something called a visual sensor. Talk to me about why you're doing that. When we started looking at this challenge of unique data capture and really visualizing the physical space, what we realized was that a lot of the algorithms that people have developed, especially on the AI side, leverage visual data. You know, we are very good at image and video analytics. But the challenge then is that most of the devices that people use in commercial buildings or in warehouse and logistics facilities, or even actually for home security, you tend to use a lot of wired cameras. And these are expensive, very difficult to install. And so if you have a, let's say, a million square foot facility, a warehouse distribution center, you can't deploy these wired sensors, wired cameras all over these large buildings. 
most of the cost is not in the hardware, but in the installation, the maintenance, the reconfiguration. And if you take the lifetime cost of it, it becomes really high. So what we've invented is a visual sensor. What we do is we use standard image sensing components. We have not, there's nothing, you know, anything exciting about those. But then we have modified the protocol. We use our own wireless sensor networking protocol that allows us to transmit image data and video clips with very low power consumption. By doing that, now what we can do is you can deploy these cameras battery-operated cameras all over your facility. And if you take an image, and by the way, these are not video streaming devices. For that, the wired cameras do really well. But there are lots of times you want to take images once a minute, once an hour. In some cases, a lot of our customers even take images once a day. For that kind of operation, our visual sensor product is really good. So now you can take images from hundreds of different locations within your facility and use AI and advanced analytics to get actionable insights and take decisions, make decisions that you know otherwise would not have been possible. So for example, you could we have an, an implementation in a warehouse where we use our wireless cameras for tracking what we call a smart truck dock application. So you just literally walk into a warehouse, put these wireless cameras and start monitoring the docks in a warehouse. And you get visual data every few minutes or every five minutes. And based on that, you can analyze truck birth utilization. You can take the license plate of the truck. You can make intelligent decisions on who the truck driver was, who the truck owner was, you know, what was the dwell time. And, and you can essentially come up with a very intelligent KPI now and monitor the operational efficiency of how your docks are operating inside the warehouse. Just an example. Or you can use it for security. You can use it for understanding space utilization in complex areas within your facilities. And you can always use it for security and for surveillance as well. So why would I use that as opposed to just a video camera? The difference is that the wired camera or the video camera essentially will have two major issues. One is that it has to be wired because you're, you know, trying to take data and stream it across a high bandwidth, you know, and so that inherently makes it wired. So installation cost goes up and the maintenance cost goes up because you, and also operating costs because now you're taking large bandwidth files and trying to store them or process them in the cloud. So what happens then, Stacey, is that if you're taking data from just one location or maybe five or six locations, that's fine because you can easily afford to do that. But if I want to take data from thousands of locations within a, a million square foot facility or a 54 building, you know, the cost of both the data capture analytics and storage becomes really high. So that's why our solution allows you to cost effectively capture the data across very large spaces and then you can visualize and digitize that space. Also outdoor, right? So for example, you can literally walk up with low six visual sensor devices and hook them up onto different things outdoors and start collecting data from them. And you don't need any wires. You don't need an electrician. You can easily move them across from one part of the outdoor location to another. That's what makes this product really different from anything else that's out there in the market. So let's talk about customers. You guys have been developing this for a while. How are people using it today? There's two areas that we have seen the most significant interest. One is from the warehouse and logistics market, and the second one is from commercial building, operation, and maintenance. The warehouse and logistics, the interest level is very high on understanding space and asset utilization, and then enabling the data that is captured to operate, to increase efficiency, increase productivity, gain more visibility in their operations inside these logistics centers. And a lot of it stays is being driven by e-commerce. There's a strong urbanization of warehouses, real estate costs are going 
signing up for these facilities as consumers are demanding product uh, closer to their homes, which happens to be in urban areas. So in the past, you may have had a distribution center in Tracy, but now it's coming right into your into South San Francisco, going all the way into downtown San Francisco. And so if you take more complex cities like Tokyo and New York, the cost of urbanized spaces is really high. So understanding space utilization is one of the most interesting use cases that we have seen. So the ability to use both the visual sensor and our location, local positioning system, our customers can understand how space is being utilized. And as part of that, then asset utilization becomes the next part, you know, how much forklifts, people, resources, are the right resources available at the right time, at the right space or the right place. Those are actionable insights that our customers really are interested in. On the commercial side, there's a lot of interest on commercial buildings, a lot of interest also, by the way, in space utilization. As you know, a lot of US or in fact, global buildings are underutilized. And so using our visual sensor and location devices, people will become more uh, efficient in how they use space within uh, commercial offices. Uh, There's a lot of interest in using our uh, products for operation maintenance. People are using our cameras, for example, for uh, monitoring rooftops, and other parts of the building. There's a lot of interest in security and surveillance, creating a much larger scope of security within larger complexes, which our traditional camera solutions cannot cover. Those are some of the interesting use cases that we have come across so far. You, like many companies, are building a platform that could really go in any number of industries, but it's also so far been very easy to see that many of the most successful IoT in the enterprise and industrial space focus on just a few areas. So I know logistics is a big deal for you. Are there other areas where you guys are going to kind of try to be hyper-focused? Yeah, I think logistics is definitely the the primary focus of the company. But then once you go beyond logistics, commercial buildings are very interesting because, again, as you know, a lot of IoT solutions have not been very successful with commercial buildings. Security and surveillance tends to be the one that people look at. But if you Take a step back and once you have better indoor location, what can I do with that? If I can improve office occupancy space utilization, then can I be more efficient with not only space, but also work operations? But if I take a step back and, you know, kind of look at our technology is as applicable to smart home. It's just that that's a slightly different market, not our main focus directly right now, but, you know, partnering with some of the larger companies who are you know focused on smart home they could leverage our technology to build in location into the home which is as you know solely missing at this point yes or if not missing it's manually inputted anything that can avoid manual input oh you know one of our partners always says you need a phd to set up a smart home today okay yeah and this is also kind of nice because it can auto update correct if i move something around it's like oh exactly Now it's different. Yeah, we put inertial sensors in our devices, very similar to your phone. So if we move, for example, you know, we are using them already in our warehouse applications where if the forklift, for example, moves, we know that now it's on the move and so now we can start tracking it. And that makes the device a lot more efficient uh, in terms of power consumption and and you're, you know, maintaining a very meaningful tracking and optimization of how things are spatially placed within your environment of interest. All right, Vikram, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for the opportunity. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.